Welcome to the VU Church Podcast. How do you react when you see things differently? Today, Pastor Luke Berry continues the collection of talks, The Art of Joy, Life Lessons from Philippians, in this message, Try Unity, sharing the importance of unity to resolve conflict and live with enduring joy. Let's lean into the message together. It's going to be a great day in church. Like Adrian said, we are in week five of our collection, The Art of Joy. Over the last four weeks, we have been studying this little letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians, and we're looking for some clues into the art of joy. One thing that's really striking as you read this letter is that Paul emphasizes joy so strongly. In just four short chapters, Uh, he says the word rejoice or the word joy 13 different times. Now, in and of this itself, this isn't necessarily remarkable, uh, though it does indicate a theme of the letter. But I think what makes this so striking is that we know the context of Paul's writing. Paul is writing from a prison cell. How many of you know, like, there's another level of authority that comes when someone's been through something that should have made them bitter but somehow it made them better, right? Like when someone who's been betrayed says, let me talk to you about the value of friendship. Or when someone who's been hurt says, let me just tell you why I love people so deeply. Or when someone who's suffering says, I want to encourage you. I wanna speak to you. I wanna teach you about joy. I think our ears should perk up a little bit because it's, it's like the opposite of bitterness. I think it's an indicator of health. It's a sign of life. If this person has gone through something and somehow they've gained wisdom that you and I just might need on our journey of faith. How can a man who's been wrongfully accused, who's been thrown in prison, who doesn't know what tomorrow holds, he doesn't know what his sentence will be, whether he will live or die, how can this man write a letter to you and to me, to people, and to encourage them to rejoice? What did Paul know that I don't? Like, what, what did Paul have that I need in my life? That, that's what we've been talking about over the last four weeks. And we've been studying Philippians, searching for clues into the art of joy. And I think we've found a whole lot so far. We've, we've seen that so much of our disposition is the result of our perspective. We can't control what happens to us in our lives, but what we can control is the story that we choose to tell ourselves about what those experiences mean. Because a human being is a meaning machine. This is what we're doing all the time, and so our joy won't be contingent just upon what happens in our lives. Our joy will be the result of what we believe those things mean for us. So Paul starts his letter, he says, whenever I remember you, I always pray with joy. I think we should pause right there and go, Paul, you're praying for us? We should be praying for you, man. You're in prison. Are you okay? Paul says, I'm great. I'm great. I, and f- I want you to know that everything that's happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. It's amazing. It says, unbelievers have become curious. Believers have become courageous. It's been incredible. He says, I can't lose. As far as I'm concerned, it's a win, 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 win. And listen, 
For me to, to live is Christ, to die is gain. My choices are like Drake, life or more life. Like that's all I've got to look forward to. Paul says, you know, honestly, I would love, I would much prefer to die so I could be with Jesus. But you know what? I think that I'll stick around because it's better for you. What kind of man is this? Who are we talking about here? He goes, you know what? I could, I could get through all of this and move on and that'd be better for me. But you know what? For your progress and for your joy, I think I'm gonna stick around in prison writing letters. I think Paul had some insight into the art of joy. I think we have a lot to learn from this man. We've talked about perseverance, how someone needs to see us suffer well. We've talked about humility, thinking of ourselves less and thinking of others more. We've talked about hope, pressing on to reach the goal and win the prize for which God has called us heavenward in Christ Jesus. And for this week's thought, for this week's subject, why don't you go with me to Philippians chapter four. And believe it or not, our main text for today is one simple verse. Philippians four, verse two, just a single verse today. Can you handle it? Awesome. Philippians 4.2, to be on the screen behind me. Paul says this, he says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. So while he's sitting in prison, while he's waiting on his sentence, Paul takes time to write a letter to the church in Philippi. And as he's bringing the letter to a close, he calls these two women out by name. And he says, listen, I've heard... I heard you've had a disagreement and I wanna plead with you. I wanna plead with you to be of the same mind in the Lord. I wanna read it to you from one more translation. We only got one verse after all. The New Living Translation, I love how it, it phrases it. This is how, how Paul says it in the New Living Translation. He says, now I appeal to Euodia and to Syntyche, please, because you belong to the Lord, Settle your disagreement. Because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. And today, as we continue our study in the art of joy, I want to speak to you from this really simple thought. Try unity. Everybody say try. try. Unity. Recently, I, uh, I read an article called The Top Idea in Your Mind. It was written by a, a businessman, an entrepreneur, a founder named Paul Graham. So in Paul's article, not to be confused with Paul's letter to the Philippians, Paul, he describes this concept um, of the top idea in your mind as the idea that your mind drifts to when it's allowed to drift freely. So the top idea in your mind is the place your mind goes when you allow it to wander. And he makes a fascinating point about these um, dominating thoughts that we experience in our lives. He says in his experience as a founder, as a business person, um, two things tend to consume your thinking when you're engaged in them. The first one is money, and the second one is disputes. Money and disputes. In his experience, these are the two things that can become all-consuming in our lives. And we can leave the conversation for money for another day, well, I'm sure it rings true for all of us. Money can often be top of mind, especially when we got problems in this area of our lives, right? But for a second, let's talk about this second thought of disputes. One of 
the top ideas in our minds, one of the things in our lives that can consume our thinking, take up mental real estate, is disputes. And I want to say it a little bit differently for our purposes as we're studying Philippians. Few things will kill your joy like unresolved conflict. Few things in your life will kill your joy like unresolved conflict. When we find ourselves in conflict with people, it kills our contentment. It consumes our thinking. It poisons our perspective. And the closer that person is to us, the worse the effect is. Right? Conflict with a complete stranger can kind of like throw off your day a little bit. You know, like I had this weird encounter with this guy in the line at Starbucks and like it kind of ruined my morning. You know, I'm over it now. But um, this is not me. This is an example. Uh, I don't go to Starbucks. Uh, just kidding. But conflict, conflict with a spouse, conflict with a father or with a mother, conflict with a sibling or a close friend, conflict at work, these things can derail an entire season of our lives. Notice that I said unresolved conflict because how many of you know there is no avoiding conflict in life? In fact, if, if our strategy is to avoid all conflict, eventually we're gonna find ourselves in a really unhealthy place in our lives where we never tell people how we really feel and we never confront issues and we resort to things like dishonesty and passive aggression and we, we don't deal with things and so we fail to progress in our life and in our relationships. This, this is a formula for stagnation in life. No, the goal is not to avoid conflict, the goal is to resolve conflict. There's a big difference. We don't grow by going around conflict, we grow by going through conflict. Unresolved conflict will make you bitter, but resolved conflict will make you better. This is a healthy perspective on human relationships because relationships are messy, human beings are not perfect, so conflict in your life might not be your problem, it might be conflict resolution. We cannot avoid conflict in our lives, however, we can work to be people who resolve conflict. We can't control other people, what they say, what they do, how they react to us, how they respond, whether or not they apologize, whether or not they forgive. But we can be people who play our part in resolving conflict with the people in our lives. How many of you know secular culture would tell you like, don't let people walk over you. You know, stand up for yourself. You, you gotta know your rights. You gotta know what you deserve. You gotta demand what people owe you. And listen, I am pro-justice, but I am also pro-forgiveness. Scripture would teach uh, we should be quick to overlook an offense. Jesus would say, turn the other cheek. I'm not saying that we should let people walk all over us, and I'm not saying uh, we should forget about justice. All I'm saying is that we should be people who strive and who seek to settle conflicts and come to resolution in our lives. Because, listen today, if we're gonna live in joy, we're going to have to live in unity. It's essential. There are practical benefits uh, to resolving conflict with people. It's a good principle for life, and Paul would even tell us in Romans, as much as possible, as much as it's within your control, live at peace with everybody. And I think that's gonna make your life better. But listen, for a Christian, there is something much deeper going on here in Paul's encouragement to Euodia and to Syntyche. It's good for us to live at peace with everyone, but it is expected, and I dare say it's required, 
for us to live at peace with one another. Paul, writing to these two Christian women in Philippi, he says, please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. So the motivation here is clear, not not because it's gonna make you more joyful, not because it's better for your life, not because it frees up mental real estate so you can focus on other things, Those are all great benefits. Those are all great consequences of having a a uh, conflict-free or resolving conflict in your life. But for a Christian, that is not the main motivation for us to live in unity. For a Christian, it starts with understanding a theological truth. And it's very, very simple, but it's deep and profound. We are one. We are one. Not we should be one. We are one. This is the theological concept known as Corpus Christi, or the body of Christ. Scripture teaches us that as we put our faith in Jesus, not only do we step into relationship with God, we enter into and we become a part of this thing we call the church. Not just a local expression of the church, like VU, but the universal body of believers across all places and all times. We are part of the church. Christ is the head and we are the body. Now, how many of you know there are a lot of theological truths that we do not live up to every day? So just because we know this is true doesn't mean we always live it. We are one, we just don't always live as one. We are one, we just have a hard time getting along with one another. So what we might call conflict, the Bible might call division. And there's a difference for us because there's one, it's one thing to be at odds with the world, meaning people who have not put their faith in Jesus and don't believe what we believe, but it is another thing to have division within the community of believers. Listen, there are things that we in the world are never gonna agree on. There are things that are never gonna be common ground for us, and that's okay. That doesn't mean we dislike or we hate or we condemn people that don't believe what we believe or don't go to church. I'm not saying that at all. The Bible teaches that God loves the world. God does not love the system or the behavior of the world, but God loves the people in the world. And we're called to love and serve the world. But listen, we are called to love and serve the church more. God loves the world, but he loves the church differently because the world is not the body of Christ. I think it's important for us to understand. And as the body of Christ, we're called to live in unity. And I just wanna show you one passage of scripture um, for foundational purposes in this idea. Originally, I pulled a bunch of stuff. Pastor Rich said, just give them one, that's enough. And so I cut a lot of stuff out for you. First Corinthians chapter 12. So Paul talks about this in Romans, Galatians, Colossians, Ephesians, tons of foundational uh, references for this. Jesus talks about it in Uh, the gospel of John. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, this is how Paul says it. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ and each of you is a part of it. So the bedrock of our unity as believers 
is our understanding of the fact that we are one. We are united. We are the body of Christ with Jesus as the head, and now we just have to learn to live like it. So as Christians, it's okay for us to differ, and it's okay for us to disagree, but it's not okay for us to live divided. We can experience disagreement, but we cannot allow division within our community. We are one in Jesus. So I wanna spend the rest of the time we have together to give you a few thoughts on what unity is and what unity is not. Does that sound good? I know I'm standing behind a pulpit and just talking today. Feel free to engage with me. Um, I'm just being chill, you know, taking it easy in the summer. No, I'm kidding. I want to talk to you about unity because you might just cringe a little bit. Like when I say, hey, we're called to live in unity and we must not allow division, that might sound a little bit intense to you. So if you're thinking like, I don't want to be part of something where like, uh, everybody's got to be exactly the same as each other. And like, we think the same and talk the same and act the same. Um, that's not at all what I'm talking about. So let me offer you this first thought, if that's you today and you're concerned. Number one, unity affirms diversity. Unity affirms diversity. Unity is not uniformity and unity is not conformity. Unity does not mean that we are all the same. In fact, I think it implies the exact opposite. What do I mean? If it were assumed that we were all the same, there would be no call for unity. If we were all the same, unity wouldn't be an aspiration. It would be an assumption. The very concept of unity actually affirms diversity because only a diverse people would have to strive to be united. I think this is where so much of the tension in our nation comes from today, because we're called the United States of America. Do we seem united to you? And I'm not here to speak to political and social divisions. I will um, leave that to Adrian. (laughs) But I say that to say this. I think one of the reasons that our nation is so divided is because our nation is so diverse. Because countries with a more homogenous population have, uh, don't have as hard a time getting along because they share a common history, a common language, a common culture. So the fact that all these cultures come together in our nation is what causes so much of the tension. So when we speak of our need for unity, we're simultaneously acknowledging our existing diversity. As we put our faith in Jesus, we step into the church community, we bring our specific stories and we bring our unique perspectives and we bring our diverse backgrounds. Paul affirms all of this in Romans chapter 12. I'll give you just one more verse if that's okay. We have different gifts, Paul says, according to the grace given to each of us. So Paul knows we're different. So when he says be united, he doesn't mean be the same. He means be different together. He means be united in your diversity. He says God has distributed different gifts to each of us. Why would God do such a thing? Because he wanted us to rely on each other. So God has given us everything we need for life and for godliness. The only problem is, the catch is, he spread those things out among different people. Because he wants us to come together in community and serve one another. We're all part of the body, but none of us is the whole thing. We're all gifted, but none of us has enough. 
So if we're gonna experience life to the fullest, if we're gonna experience love and joy and peace, we're gonna have to do so together because there is no complete joy in isolation. If you're going like, I wanna experience this joy we're talking about. I wanna learn the art of joy. I wanna experience the joy that Jesus offers and I've put my faith in him and I've read some of the Bible and I've, I've spent some time in prayer. Uh, maybe the thing that you're missing is a connection to community where you know people and you're known. The thing that Nilsson was talking about where you submit to authority and you serve people and in humility you value others above yourself. Maybe that's the missing piece of the puzzle for you because I think there is a fullness of joy that only comes in life, in community. It's reserved. So God's not saying like you have to be just like everybody else. He's saying I've given you gifts that are special and unique, but I didn't give them to you so you could use them for your own self-interest. I gave them to you so you could use them to serve and help and encourage people. And so you could connect to a place where you would be served and helped and encouraged. It's called the church. It's called the body of Christ, the community of believers, all places, all times. And listen, we're not a church that says you've got to look just like us, be just like us, talk just like us, think just like us. However, we are a church that affirms and celebrates diversity, diversity in age, diversity in race, diversity in culture, diversity in expression. However, we are also a church that is going to emphasize the things that unite us more than we emphasize the things that divide us. We're gonna speak more to our commonality than to our differences. So yes, we have different backgrounds and perspectives and different ideas, but we have one Lord, we have one Savior, we have one faith and one hope and one baptism. We are one in Jesus. We are the body of Christ. And I love that my kids are gonna grow up in a community where they're surrounded by people that don't just look and think and talk exactly like them. I think church is so good for my children. Um, my, my son, Roman, I was gonna say my friend. He is my friend. <laughs> my buddy, Roman, uh, one of his best friends is a, a boy named Uri. I wanna show you Roman and Uri right here, okay? So this photo is a little old, but it's the best photo we got of them. They took a photo on Thursday at the movies, but this one's better. Um, this is Roman and Uri and they've been friends for a long time. But one of my favorite things about their relationship is that Roman doesn't call Uri, Uri. Roman calls Uri, my Rye. <laughs> and you can see where the confusion might come in when you're three years old. So we tried to explain it to him, he wasn't getting it, and we're like, you know, I like it better. My Rye it is. It's like, hey, Uri's coming over, my Rye. Um, Paul says, we're, we're members of the body, and he says, each one of us belongs to each other. Why don't you tell someone next to you, you're my rye. You're my rye. I am yours, you are mine. We belong to one another. We're here to serve one another. You're my rye. So if you're going, oh, we can, oh, it's gone, okay. <laughs> I thought people were still um, admiring the cuteness of the photo. If you're going, I don't wanna be part of something where we all have to be the same. That's not at all what we're about here. Unity, it doesn't oppose diversity, it actually affirms diversity. But second thought here, unity assumes disagreement. I like this one. 
Unity assumes disagreement. If you're thinking like, I don't wanna be somewhere where I can't like be honest with what I really think and how I really feel. Like I just gotta pretend that I agree with everybody. Um, no, no, this thought's for you today. The fact that we're called to unity tells me that Paul assumes we're gonna have disagreements. He, he knows that for a fact. He doesn't say to Euodia and to Syntyche, he doesn't say, how dare you disagree? That's not allowed in my church in Philippi. He says, because you belong to the Lord, I urge you, settle it. Settle your disagreement. It's okay that you disagree, but I urge you to work it out. And the fact that we need to be reminded to be united tells me that it's assumed we're gonna experience moments of disagreement. There's nothing wrong with disagreement. The problem is when disagreement becomes division. We can disagree agreeably. I think Pastor Rich said it beautifully. He said, you can disagree without disrespecting one another. We can disagree without dishonoring one another. And we can disagree without causing division between us. So let me ask you a question today, really practical. How do you disagree? Do you disagree in a respectful, honoring, kind way? Do you disagree agreeably? We could break this word division down into two words, die, vision, two visions. So let me ask it differently. How do you react when you see things differently? How do you react when there are two visions in a situation? Do you disrespect and dishonor or do you seek to settle it? If you're not experiencing joy in your life, maybe it's because you're unsettled. And if you're unsettled, maybe it's because there's something you need to settle in your life. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 5. He says, if, if you are offering your gift at the altar, for us, translation, if you're coming to church, uh, you're, coming to, you're singing the songs, or you're listening to a sermon, and in that moment, you remember that your brother or your sister has something against you. Jesus says, first, everybody say first, first go and be reconciled to them. Then come offer your gift at the altar. What Jesus is saying is that it is critical that we live in unity with people, that we not allow disagreements to continue, that we, we seek to resolve and to settle our differences. Maybe the problem with our churches is that we want to live in unity with God, we just refuse to live in unity with one another. Maybe the problem is that we want to ask God for forgiveness, we just won't say, I'm sorry. We just won't say I was wrong. We just won't, we won't say I forgive you. May we never be a people who is okay to live at odds with one another. I don't mean let people do whatever they want. I don't mean let them walk all over you or continue in sin or in error. Um, in church, we, we correct, we confront. That's part of it. But I mean, have a heart for unity. Don't fight to be right. Fight for unity. Fight to be united. If you're not experiencing joy today, try unity. Did you know that disagreements can strengthen churches? This is um, what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 12. A disagreement in your life can either impair your relationship or can improve your relationship. In 1 Corinthians 11, oh, I lied. There's one more verse. This is the last one. Sorry. It's fine. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, no doubt there have to be differences among you. Everybody say it had to happen. 
It had to happen. There have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Paul says, listen, there have to be differences among you in the churches. It may be our similarities that bring us together, but it is our differences that are gonna make us better if we will allow them to. Because in conflict, we see a contrast between opposing points of view or opposing ways of thinking or opposing ways of life. And we're forced to confront the contrast and come to a resolution. This is called learning. This is called growing. This is called maturing. It is a natural and healthy part of a community and of a relationship. Part of the function of community is to challenge and correct us. And so as we disagree, we have an opportunity to grow, to get better. So don't assume that disagreement is a sign of division because that's not necessarily the case. It just might be a necessary step on the journey of learning a very important lesson in your life. If we'll do the hard work of resolving things and working it out, I think we'll find ourselves better on the other side. You know, um, you know who I disagree with the most strongly and the most openly and the most often? My wife. You could have guessed that one. In fact, I think we have a disagreement every Friday afternoon. We may as well put on the calendar at this point. It's okay. Our goal in our marriage is not to uh, eliminate disagreement. Our goal is to learn to disagree better, to disagree respectfully and in an honoring way, to not lose our minds and lose our cool. Because we know that our disagreements can be some of the greatest instruments God uses to refine us. They can be tools in his sharpening process. So we don't have to run from it. If we'll lean into it, it'll make us better. And all the married people said amen. All right. Unity affirms diversity. Unity assumes disagreement. But lastly today, unity amends differences. Unity amends differences. Unity does not mean we're all the same. It doesn't mean we always agree. It means that when we differ, we come back together. And that process of disagreeing and reconciling, of differing and disentangling is a formula for maturity. It's how we grow and get better. Maturity does not come from never disagreeing. Rather, it comes from finding ourselves on different pages and somehow finding our way back to our shared story. It comes from finding ourselves in different places and somehow finding our way back to common ground again. Disagreeing and resolving, differing and coming back together in unity. Few things will kill your joy like unresolved conflict and few things will kill a church like unchecked division. Our differences don't have to devolve into division. We can settle our disagreements and we can overcome division with unity. Recently, I was reading about uh, two distinct types of identity politics. We're gonna go there today. The first type is what we call common enemy identity politics. This is an attempt to unite people by appealing to their shared enemy. The worst example of this is probably Nazi Germany, attempting to unite Germans by stirring up hatred for Jews. 
Now, the second type of identity politics is what we call common humanity identity politics. This is an attempt to unite people by appealing to their shared humanity. And arguably the best example of this in recent history is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Attempting to attain civil rights for black Americans by reminding white Americans that we're all created in the image of God, that we're all human beings. One group said, let's unite because of their differences. And the other said, let's unite because of our commonalities. I love this framework for understanding identity politics because it shows that it's not necessarily bad to identify with one group or to celebrate being part of a group. I'm proud to be from this country or I'm proud to be part of this ethnicity. But it reminds me that how we frame the discussion will determine whether the identification is divisive or unifying. A common enemy framework brings people together, but it brings people together in the wrong way for the wrong reasons, and so its end is division. A common humanity framework brings people together by appealing to our shared humanity, and so its end is unity. How we frame the discussion is essential. But I think that as Christians, we actually have a deeper level of connectedness. We have what I call common authority. Not only do we have a common enemy, and we do, not only do we have common humanity, and we do, we share a common authority, Jesus Christ. He is the head, and we are his church. Our submission to Christ as the head in our lives unites us as a community that goes far beyond our individual identities. It does not erase our identities. It subsumes them and absorbs them into a whole that is greater than the sum of its parts. And sometimes when we come together in community, we experience something that the 19th century French sociologist Emile Durkheim called collective effervescence. Durkheim, he, he saw groups and communities as being in some ways like organisms, social entities that have a chronic need to enhance their internal cohesion and their sense of moral order. He called human beings homo duplex or two-level man. He described the first level of life as the profane and the higher level as the sacred. Durkheim, he claimed that we have access to a set of emotions that we experience only as part of a collective. Collective effervescence is the name that he gave to what we might call social electricity. That feeling we've all had when a gathered group achieves a state of union with one another. You could have experienced it at a concert or at a football game or maybe in church. These experiences, they bind members together and they strengthen their sense of shared identity and connection. This sounds a whole lot to me like how Paul described the church. We're the body of Christ, each individual members, but all one organism. We are all united under a common authority, Christ the head. We are the body bound together in a common union. And when we come together in unity, we experience collective effervescence, a joy that goes beyond anything we could have experienced on our own, a joy greater than individual experience. Paul says, we suffer together 
and we rejoice together. We feel one another's pain and we feel one another's joy. Let me tell you today, sometimes joy is counterintuitive because we think we're gonna find it in solitary comfort when we may be more likely to find it in collective suffering. When we share in the pain and in the joy of other people. And in our unity, we live as a reflection of our maker. The God who created us, we were created by God in the image of God and the vision of God we see from the beginning is not singular, it's plural. Genesis 1.26 says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness. One more tricky theological concept for you today. The Trinity. Our God is one in three, three in one. God in three persons, God in loving community. Our story begins with this triune God. We see God the Father, the maker, the creator, the first cause in the creation account. We also see God the Son, the Word, the Logos, the logic, and we see God the Spirit hovering over the waters. One God in three persons. And all of creation, all beauty, all diversity, all creativity, and every good thing, all love, all peace, and all joy flows out of this holy tri-unity. If you aren't living in joy, maybe you should try unity. If you find yourself divided, I urge you, because you belong to Christ, settle your disagreements. I don't know your story. I don't know the details. I don't know what happened to you. I don't know what was said to you or what was done to you. I don't know whose fault it was or who should make it right. But I know that you are called to live in common unity with fellow believers, that this unity is a reflection of the God who created you and that without it, you will never experience fullness of joy. So if you're looking for joy today, why don't you try unity? Unity, it affirms diversity. It assumes disagreement. Unity, it amends differences. It brings us together. We're not called to be the same. We're called to be different, but together, united, one body, one authority, one head, Jesus Christ. Let me pray for you today. God, I pray for everyone in this place, in this room, watching online, listening later. God, I just pray that this message would do its work, God, that your word would go forth even something as simple as a single verse. Now I plead with you, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. I don't know who I'm speaking to today. I don't know what's happening right now. Maybe it's for the future. Maybe they're in the middle of it right now. I know there is, there's not much pain like the pain of a broken relationship. So God, I pray that you would work within every situation and every heart, God, that you would speak to people now. Maybe people walking out of this place would find someone to talk to, 
to process or maybe they have a phone call to make, to make amends. We can't control if people accept an apology, if people forgive, or if people apologize, but we can let things go. We can have a heart for unity. We can seek to settle our disagreements and come to a resolution. We can play our part in eliminating division from our lives and resolving conflict and living together as one. God, I pray for unity in our church. Pray for unity in this community. Thank you for the diverse gifts that you've placed here. I pray that we'd be a healthy church full of people who are honest with what they think and how they feel, what they're going through. People who don't pretend, don't posture. But God, that as we disagree, we could disagree agreeably and respectfully. That we would not sacrifice relationships to be right. That we'd be reconciled to our brothers and to our sisters. That we'd live as you designed us to live, God, and that in that unity we would find an abundance and a fullness of joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. At VU, we believe we weren't meant to do life alone. We've been created with a unique purpose and designed to live in relationship with Jesus. If you've never surrendered your life to him, we want to create an opportunity for you to do so today. If you want to say yes to Jesus, would you pray this with me? Dear Jesus, come into my life. Be the Lord of my life. I trust you with my past. I ask that you guide me in my present, and I even place my future in your hands. I'm yours, Lord, now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. If you made the decision to follow Jesus today, we want to partner with you in the next steps on your faith journey. Go to rootchurch.com slash online. We love you.